Father, we come before you and we pray for your hand of blessing and your guiding hand, one that would just simply lead us where we need to go as far as ministry is concerned. The upcoming Cambodia trip, going down to Mexico again and maybe taking on additional ministry tasks down there. We just want to wait on you, Lord. If this is what you want, we want to be open for it. But also, Lord, we want to be open for what your word says. We pray for your blessing upon your word going out, that it would have its desired effect, that it would make us into disciples and bring new people into the faith. We desire this with all of our hearts, Lord, and we know it's according to your will. So we know whatever we ask according to your will, we have it. And we'll trust in you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I was walking up here. Papa Joe shook my hand and he said, you never talk about the Middle East. How come you never talk about the Middle East? Do I talk about the Middle East? I talk about the Middle East in the Bible study. And I, we go, what? yeah, three weeks ago, we didn't even get to the study because we were dealing with the Middle East and what's going on. Now, this is Palm Sunday, and I do want to focus on Palm Sunday, but I want to just bring everybody up to date on what's going on in the Middle East. Now, why is this even important? I thought you would never ask. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, and please pull out a Bible on this one, because I'm jumping around everywhere today, and John may not have the ability to get the scripture up there as quickly as he would like. I'm going to be focusing on Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. So I just asked the question, why are we even focusing on the Middle East? What's the deal with that? What does that have to do with anything concerning the Bible? Well, it has to do with the second coming of Christ. And I'll get into it a little more, but this is the second coming of Christ. In verse 11, I saw the heaven standing open. And by the way, this is not the rapture which precedes this. This is the second coming. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. His armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. By the way, that is you. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which, he, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. God, or for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had promised or performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The two 
Of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now turn over to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. This is a little more detailed description of this same coming. And you saw how all the people will be destroyed at that point, those who would like to make war against Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 14, it says, A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will divide among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. After the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by the mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Again, that is you. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. So this is a description. If you go on in that chapter, it tells how the people will die when he comes back. It says their flesh will be torn off of their bodies, their eyes will melt in their sockets, and their tongues will cleave to the roof of their mouth all before they hit the ground. That's when Jesus comes back. So we're looking for that second coming. Palm Sunday is the first coming where he showed up as God. Now, am I going in and out? I am. Testing. One, two, three. Am I in? Am I out? I'm in. So where I stand? If I stand over here, how's that? I good? Okay, I'm good. So, where was I? Talking about the Middle East. So what's the big deal about the Middle East? It portends, it points to what I just read here. Am I still going in and out? I'm going to be in jail for a little bit, standing right here. Okay, where was I? The Middle East. What is going on in the Middle East? What is going on with our world? I mean, this is not your mommy and daddy's earth, right? It's changing a little bit. Let me just give you, I'm going to give you a flyover real quick because I do want to get into Palm Sunday. What's taking place in the Middle East? The United States is now taking our only ally of democracy in the Middle East, which is Israel, and we are making them a non-ally. And we are aligning ourselves with people like Iran. We are aligning ourselves with people like North Korea. We are trying to make nice with people like Putin in Russia. In Turkey, in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood, we are told that this is what democracy looks like. And Assisi got in there and he overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood because of the, 
the violent overthrow of the Muslim Brotherhood that was over there. And five of those Muslim Brotherhood leaders were taken into the White House and they were shaking hands. But Bibi Netanyahu from Israel, whom the God sa- and God says, if we bless Israel, we will also be blessed. But we are turning our backs on Israel. Therefore, what's going to happen to us? We will be cursed if we do that according to Scripture. Let me ask you, is our country more blessed today than it was 10 years ago? Wow, I'm I'm glad you guys see that. It is not. It is degrading in all ways. The economy, the morality, the economics of everything that's taken place, the jobs, the housing market, everything is just going into the tank. Isn't this supposed to be an encouraging message? Yes, we're going to get there. Okay, just hold on. So you see the Middle East, and what is Saudi Arabia doing? Saudi Arabia has its neighbor, which is Yemen. And Yemen has just fallen to the hardline Islamicists, which are over there. The radical Islamist religion that, and by the way, I just I want to digress a little bit here a little more. This idea of Islam being a religion of peace that is false, that is only the Johnny-come-lately religion over all of history, it has always been that the Islamic religion, the Muslim religion, has been one of war. You either convert or you die. That is it. There has only been a short period of time where it is this religion of peace. As we have been told by our leaders, it is not a religion of peace. And they are determined to take over the whole world. Iran wants to build a nuclear bomb. We have just capitulated and we have taken away all of our demands. France has even said, no, I don't want to uh, participate in this because we're giving them way too much. And they want to build a nuclear bomb. Now tell me why they want to build a nuclear bomb. Israel, yes, but it's first Saturday, then Sunday. Are you familiar with that phrase? First they want to kill the Jews, then they want to come after the Christians. I was just reading today, and I actually have some quotes in my message, of what's taking place with the Christians around the world. I'm not going to get into the gory details because it is as bad as you can imagine for Christians around the world. They just killed somebody in Korea because they had a Bible. They, they slaughtered them. Because they had a Bible. And so Saudi Arabia right now, they're looking at Yemen, who has been overtaken by the Islamicists over there. And Saudi Arabia is now building a border fence, a huge border fence. It's massive. And they got drones and they got military outposts going all the way along it because they want to stop Yemen from coming in. Because the Yemenis are aligning themselves with the Shiites, which are ISIS, which is Hezbollah, which is Hamas, which is Iran. And over in Saudi Arabia, they are Sunni. And they don't get along. They hate each other more than Saudi Arabia hates Israel. Saudi Arabia will give Israel flyover rights to take care of Iran. That's how much they hate each other. And so they are preparing, they are gearing up. Did you see the headlines in the news that the Arab army arises? It is gearing up over there in the Middle East. There is complete turmoil, and that's because there is not somebody at the helm who stands up for what righteousness is and standing up for the nation of Israel. We would be blessed if we did that. And so that is what is portending to the second coming of Christ. Now, with Europe and Ezekiel chapter 38, if you read through that, you see um, 
the nations of Magog and Gog and Persia and Beth Tagarma and all these other Arab countries which are going to come down and they're going to try to attack Israel. They're going to try to destroy it. And God is going to destroy them to the point of removing all but 20%. God is going to intervene himself in what is taking place. And as you see, Putin and Russia come across the Caspian and the Black Seas. All he has to do is drop down into Israel and everybody now is turning away from Israel. That's why we're looking at what's taking place in the Middle East. How much time do we have? I was asked the question of Bible study this last week. So when's the rapture happening? I have no idea when the rapture's happening. It could be tomorrow. It could be in a couple of weeks. It could be a couple of months or a couple of years or a hundred years. I don't know. But I do know this. We are sliding towards Gomorrah in all ways throughout the entire earth. By the way, somebody took communion with wine in Iran, and they killed him for drinking wine. That's a Christian who did that. So that's where we're headed. But with all this, the second coming, and we're looking for the second coming. We're looking at the signs that are given to us on earth. I'm waiting for signs in heaven. That Bible talks about that too. For instance, now people are talking about the blood moons, right? I think that's a normal occurrence, even though there's four of them that are taking place and the eclipses and all of that. I, I get that, and it, it lends itself to the understanding that bad things are going to happen to Israel. And I get that. But what I'm looking for is something fantastic in heaven. Now, what would be fantastic? And I'm talking about in space. I'm not talking about the third heaven. If there were to be a supernova that you could see during the day, that would be something that we really haven't witnessed, right? Something like that showed up. Or if there was a convergence of several comets at one time coming through our solar system, if anything caused us to go, ooh, look at that. Well, that's a sign in the heaven. That's a wonder. You're going, I wonder what this means. What, what does this sign mean? It's like you're going down a road and you see all these barricades and delineators and that's a sign to you, right? Same thing if there's signs in the heavens. Those are delineators saying, okay, here it comes. And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Russia to keep on coming down. I'm looking for Saudi Arabia and, and Iran to be at odds with each other and Persia, which is Iran, to be aligned with Russia and come on down. So that's what's taking place. That's the second coming. But what about the first coming? He told us he was going to come. And what is this idea of Palm Sunday. We have some palms up here, and you might say, well, that's a nice decoration up there. They're all nice and green. That's wonderful. We have a little bit more foliage. It makes me feel a little more serene. Well, this idea of Palm Sunday is the day we celebrate what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem exactly one week before his resurrection. It was the final step that he took in revealing himself to the country as the Messiah, and this was the final step in providing salvation for the lost. It is marked as the start of what we often call the Passion Week or the final seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, what was the scripture reading today? Was that out of the book of Luke? It was. Did he, uh, Eric, did you read 19, or excuse me, 29 through 48? That was it. Okay. Well, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 12, verse 12, please. Turn your Bible.
Here's another account of what is known as the triumphal entry. The next day, the great crowd, whoa, that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, in his earthly life, was a poor individual. I'm okay now, okay. He was a poor individual. And when they put him on this colt or on this donkey, the babe of a donkey, that had never been ridden, it had never been broken. That was the sign. And when they paraded him up to um, Jerusalem, now the, the trek, if you go to Israel, you'll be over at uh, Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, and it drops down into the Kidron Valley right there, and it goes back up over to the Gate Beautiful. And they'll take you on that road uh, if you go over there. And Jesus would have been on this donkey, and they would have thrown their cloaks. Now, their cloaks would have been their outer coat, They would have put that on him. They threw them down in the street as well, and they got these palm branches. Now, it's not these palm branches. These palm branches are queen palms. And it's not, if you go outside here, kitty corner, there's um, uh, Phoenix uh, canariensis. It's a large, huge pine, or excuse me, a palm tree. It's not those palms either. If you go right on the corner of this building, these are Phoenix robolinis. It's not those palms either. It is a phoenix, but it is the date palm. Now, you guys are familiar with date palms, what they look like, right? If you go up to Lake Jennings and you're going up in front of the lake, if you turn over to the Helix Water District, they have a bunch of date palms there. You pull those things off, they have spikes on them, very dangerous spikes. They will go right through your hand, right through your body. And this is what they cut out of the palm, uh, the palm trees. And they took them and they waved them before Jesus, which was the sign of honoring somebody who was a king or somebody who was victorious. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were saying, save now. That's what Hosanna means. And they were thinking they were going to be saved from the Roman occupation, which was there. And Jesus, he rode into the place. And there is an example of this being treated the same way in the Old Testament. I'll just read it to you. It's in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. And this is about Jehu. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpets and shouted, Yehu is king, or Jehu is king. And so this is how they would receive a conquering king or somebody who is victorious in a battle somewhere. Jesus was received by the people, but it only took them seven days in order for them to turn and say he's the one that needs to be crucified. Now turn over to Mark chapter 11, verse 1. If God wants to make sure that you got a message... How many times in the Bible do you think you'd have to say it? Well, he says it three times. He wants us to know that this first coming was something that was foreordained, and he records it both as prophecy and in the Gospels three times. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Here's another record of the triumphal entry. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it, and send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, told them to, and the people let them go. Could you imagine that? Going to somebody's house and saying, I need your truck. Well, why do you need my truck? What are, you, what are you getting in that for? The Lord told me that you would give it to us. Oh, okay. That's what they did. They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while the others spread branches they had cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now let's go to verse 12 again. As we continue, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not... Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, and they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. And it goes on to talk about the withered fig tree, and then the, the leaders in Jerusalem questioned Jesus' authority in verse 29 after they had asked him, who gave you the authority to do this? He responded, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. What a bunch of cowards. You know, they're not even willing to stand up on what they believe. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So Jesus, he rides into Jerusalem on this colt, on the foal of a donkey, and they throw the cloaks over him, and they throw the branches down, and they're just praising and hailing him. And then the next day he goes down and he clears out the temple. Now most of you know this story. And by the way, those of you who have been believers for a long time, you understand what's taking place here. And it's good to review it at least once a year, just like we're going to review the Passover and also the resurrection of Christ. That's the whole reason we get together. And that's why we review it. The challenge is to deliver the message on this particular day and also next week in a different format so you don't get the same message and you say, well, in 2014, Pastor Bill said the same thing. Well, it's the same message. 
Okay, so I just want you to be reminded of this. If you haven't heard of all of this, it will be good for you to be introduced to it. So Jesus came into Jerusalem, right? Presented himself. He cleared out the temple and the tables of the money changers. And what were they doing? They had these big, probably marble tables that were up there. And when you came to the temple to offer your sacrifice, you would have foreign currency, probably Roman currency. And they'd say, no, you've got to exchange that for the temple currency before you can buy the sacrifice, the approved sacrifice, because your sacrifice is not going to pass the test of muster. They're going to find something wrong with it, a hair, a blemish, or whatever. And they're going to say, I'm sorry, the sacrifice that you brought, which is prescribed by the Old Testament book of Leviticus, it's not going to work for us here. So we want to show you some newer shiny models that are over here. Some of these lambs that can be sacrificed and we have this for your convenience but before you can do that you have to take your greek and your roman currency and you have to trade it in for the temple currency of course we're going to charge you a fee to do that and then we can give you the money to go and buy this from somebody else who has an inflated price on that sacrifice which is over there because after all they're perfect and yours is not so perfect and we'll give you a trade-in value for that we'll take your little lamb and we'll put him around to the side and as soon as you leave we'll bring him around the front and we'll sell him as well and so they were making money on this and you had to go to the tables of the money changers and they were acting pious oh bless you blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord then you know that type of thing and they would come up and they'd give their money and the people were poor and they were charging them they were taking advantage of them and they were becoming wealth are wealthy off of the religion that they were supposedly following. And Jesus was, a technical term, he was ticked. He was mad. Now, this is the second time, I believe it's in John chapter 2, where he took a whip and he cleared out the tables then as well. And so the people just received him, and he gets there. The next day, he sees it's, it's probably the evening sacrifice on the triumphal entry day. And so he says, okay, we're going to go back and I'm going to come back in the morning. In the morning, makes this whip and he starts whipping. Now, some people say, was he whipping the people or was he hurting out the animals? I don't know. I'm sure he was hurting out the animals. But what if somebody came up to try to stop him? You know, I have a tendency to think that maybe he turned that whip on them too. Now, we have this idea of Jesus meek and mild. You know, he, this guy was a carpenter, right? Now, carpenters are strong. Right, Buzz? Where are you? Oh, he's, Buzz is a carpenter. Now, Buzz is a fire plug, right? He's got some shoulders on him. You don't want to mess with him. He'll take you down. He will. He's got some strength to him. Now, Jesus, you know, he worked a carpenter all of his life. He's probably a stocky guy, probably not too tall, probably 5'6 to 5'8, something like that. Nothing to really look at, but he was a carpenter. And he made this whip, and he goes over to the marble tables. Now, we have um, marble and stone tables, or countertops, right? And they're three quarters of an inch thick. These things were probably four inches thick. And he went up there and turned them over. Now, if you're a money changer, what are you thinking? annoyed of that guy you know you you are going to be upset and he is just madder than all get out because somebody has taken over his father's house a house of prayer and turned it into a business that should be a warning for us as the church making merchandise of the religion of god and it even says that in timothy there are people who are out there that just do this for financial gain 
and we're not supposed to do that. So if you ever see that out there, you want to be warned of that. So he turns over these tables, and then he speaks to the, the fig tree, and the fig tree, he curses it, and of course, that is supposed to be a depiction of the nation of Israel. Well, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and it withered. The next day they came out and they saw it. It was completely withered. Now, what about all of this? We see that this is recorded at least three times by three different individuals, and we see that also it's recorded in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And this is certainly prophecy, but I want you to take your Bibles. And by the way, we are in Daniel chapter 9, or going to be in Daniel chapter 9 in the Bible study. And that's where I want you to turn is Daniel chapter 9. And I'll probably repeat this at the Bible study, but this is the prophecy concerning Jesus coming to the nation of Israel and presenting himself. Now, this begs the question, so why is that important? Why is it important that it's in the Old Testament, it's talked about in the Old Testament, the exact day was given from the time that was declared by Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? The exact day, and I'm going to work out the math for you on that, But that's when God prophesied that the Messiah would show up and they were supposed to know the day of his coming because God told them the specific day. He said on this day, if they were diligent, they would have known that that was the Messiah. And you know what? I think there were probably some who did that actually knew that that was the day that the Messiah would show up. And they were probably just in awe, but the leaders over them, the chief priests, Ananias or um, Ananias and um, Caiaphas, excuse me, Caiaphas. He was the, the high priest there. Those guys would have suppressed any of that information. And so this is the prophecy that was given concerning Jesus and his first coming. No one understand this in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. I'm going to go back and say why this is really important here. Now, this is a total... Let me digress. Let me go back. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens. Now, this seven sevens is 49 years. And we'll get into that in the Bible study, how all this works out. And 62 sevens, which is 434 years. He's given an exact timeline here. He says, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. The total years here are 483 years. Then he goes on to give some more commentary. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. The anointed one is the Messiah. This is referring to Jesus. And will have nothing. Then the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. So it goes from the anointed one, the Messiah, when he is cut off, and then the ruler who will come and destroy, which is referring to the Antichrist, and war will come like a flood, war will continue till the end. Verse 27, this is what the Antichrist will do. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, let's take a break. Is there a need, a big need, for somebody to go to the Middle East 
and make a treaty? I don't think everybody heard the question. Do you think that there is a need for somebody to go over to the Middle East and make a treaty with all the countries that are over there? Now, why would that be? Well, I just explained all that. You have Yemen that fell. You have Egypt, which fell but brought back with uh, the general who was there. You have uh, Syria to the north and Lebanon and both of those. There's wars going on there. And then you have Hamas and Hezbollah. I already explained all of this. You have Saudi Arabia ramping up, I mean, and, and Iran and then Israel. Somebody needs to come forward and do something with peace over there. How many years have we been trying to get peace over there? Ever since I can remember, before I was born, actually. It has been going on where they've tried to have this peace process where everything just smooths out. I will tell you this. Our world is governed by the aggressive use of force. And it will not be peaceful over there until somebody wins. When's that going to happen? Yes, that's it. it. When Jesus comes back, then there will be peace. So it, I don't care what president, what prime minister, whoever is over there, it ain't going to happen. I know that's technical language. But it ain't going to happen up until the time that Jesus comes back. And he tells us this. So, now these seven are these 70 weeks, and this is called the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. That's the last seven, and it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Only 69 weeks have been fulfilled according to this prophecy. But we know that the Messiah is cut off after these 69 weeks. So you have seven seven and 62 sevens, which makes 69 weeks. There's one more week left to be fulfilled, and that is going to be the tribulation period. So the 70 weeks are divided into three parts. Seven weeks, 49 years until the city and its walls are rebuilt. Now, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, makes the following argument in detail. Now, the total time period before the Messiah would show up, according to the prophecy of Daniel, is 173,880 days. Sir Robert Anderson went back and he did the math. He did the math, not according to the Gregorian calendar, which we are under, but according to the prophetic calendar. And in that calendar, there are only 360 days in a year. So he started counting from the time that the decree was given by Artaxerxes. He gave permission for the Jews to rebuild the city. And once that took place, he did the math, the 69 weeks of the prophetic years of 360 days, or 69 times 7 times 360 equals 173,880 days. And when you start counting from that decree, that's when the anointed one will be cut off, right? That's when he shows up. That's the triumphal entry date. It's the exact day from this prophecy. Now, why is that so important? So what? So what's the big deal about this? I mean... If somebody shows up and tells you that when you leave here, and I wish this upon nobody, but you get four flat tires as you leave, what's the chance of that happening? Pretty slim. I mean, when was the last time you had four flat tires? Have you ever known anybody that's had four flat tires? Maybe. Oh, you do. Okay, so there's one out of 
all you guys, right? And if we had a thousand people here, there's probably no one. So if somebody told you that and they said it's going to happen at one o'clock and you would say, no way. All of a sudden you get four flat tires at one o'clock. What would you think? Ooh, that guy's a prophet. How did he know that? Or that woman's a prophet who told me that. How did she know that? You would know that they have knowledge of something that you don't, right? No one on this earth has that kind of knowledge. This knowledge can only come from outside of our existence. That means it's truly God speaking when he speaks prophetically. That's why you can trust the Bible. I've said this so many times before. You cannot trust any other work of antiquity and a religious nature that refers to another God. None of them are prophetic. This is the only one that is prophetic. And this is just one prophecy. There are hundreds of prophecies that are in here. This is why we can trust it. You know, the people that say, well, I just don't believe it. Why? Because where's the promise of his coming? I don't see him anywhere. You know, it's like, would you just please? I'm going to take a side note here. Patty and I, we uh, like to go down to the beach. And we ride our bikes down there. And I take pictures and I post them on Facebook. You know, I say, this is Patty. And I say things like, blessed, and it was a beautiful, sunshiny day this last week, and we went down there, and we were riding bikes, and every time I've down there, I've seen these guys for years, the Jehovah Witnesses up by the lifeguard tower over by Joe's Crab Shack. And I went by them a couple of times, and I'm looking at them, and that's it, I got to talk to them. And so I, I told Patty, I got this strong urge, I got to go talk to these guys, right? And so I pulled up and they say, the little sign there says, what does the Bible really say? And I go, okay, I'll use that as a platform. And, and so I pulled up and I was on my bike and I said, so tell me, what does the Bible really say? Well, we'll show you. And they were starting to tell me of the new kingdom that's going to come and how we're going to inhabit this earth. And, you know, we were just going on and I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. You know, he's reading his stuff. And I said, you know, I have a question. Could you turn to Revelation chapter 22, please, in verse 12? Could you read that? He goes, certainly. And he took out his New World Translation. He turned over there and it's Jesus talking there. But of course, it didn't say Jesus. But it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I said, who is that? He goes, well, that's Jehovah. I said, well, can we confirm that by the Old Testament? Can you turn to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6? Well, certainly. And he turns to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, and he starts reading it and says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I said, that's the same Jehovah, right? And he goes, well, yes, that is. I said, could you turn back to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, and read that? And I said, there is no change of voice, and you guys have heard this before. And I said, could you just keep reading from verse 12 down to verse 16, where the same person is talking the whole way, and Jesus names himself, and he says, I, Jesus. I said, I, Jesus, is the Alpha and the Omega. Do you see that? And he goes, no. And I said, well, wait, whoop, stop. Let's back up. Alpha and Omega is right there. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And right here he says, I, Jesus. Jesus is calling himself the Alpha and the Omega. And he goes, no, there's two people talking. So the other guy stands up. And he's about six foot three. And he goes, oh, what's going on here? And he, so I start talking to him. And I said, look, I know what you guys believe. And he goes, oh, really? You think you know what we believe? And I said, well, yeah, I know what you believe. I know that you believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel who became incarnate, who did not resurrect physically in a bodily form, and that you're going to repopulate the earth here and hell doesn't exist. He goes, well, that is what we believe. (laughs) And and I said, but if you look at the scriptures properly, just could you do me a favor and answer my questions on the scripture? 
And he goes, no, no, let's go back to Genesis 3. I said, no, 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 let's stay right here on the deity of Christ. And he would not focus on one scripture. Every time I would give him a scripture, I'd say, could you turn to John 20, 28 in your New World Translation and see what Thomas, doubting Thomas, calls Jesus Christ. And he calls him God in human form. And he goes, no, no, let's go back to Genesis. I said, no, 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 stop, stop, just go to John. And he would not, he would not stop. He just wanted to be argumentative. He would not believe what I was trying to tell him out of his own New World Translation. And there are going to be those, and we have three minutes left, there are going to be those who refuse to believe what's going on. And these two guys were one of them, and his name was Elbert. Elbert. I thought he said Obert, but his name was Elbert. And at the end of it, I said, you know, error always runs away from truth, but truth never runs from error. Because at that time, he was picking up stakes and we're getting out of here, you know, that type of thing. And I said, I also want to leave you with one other thing. You guys believe that you get a second chance once you resurrect, but Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. There is no second chance. And the other guy who was not doing so well turns to me and says, well, we'll see if you get resurrected, won't we? And I just, I said, yeah, we'll see. And I tried to tell them. So for you, I think most all of you are believers in here. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, presented himself on Palm Sunday to the world as the Messiah, but the world rejected him. But you understand that and you have taken hold, taken advantage of what he has done, his sacrifice for us, and you have chosen to believe. But there are those, I believe, sitting in here who refuse to believe. Now, who are they? You might look around and go, I don't know, who doesn't believe in here? Scripture says in the kingdom parables there's always going to be people inside of a church that are not going to believe, that take on the form of godliness, but they deny its power. Jesus was a real man, showed up in this time domain, was God in human form, and said, I want to save you from the judgment which is to come. I think all of you have done that. If you haven't done that, even in Zechariah, it tells what's going to happen, chapter 14, to those who don't believe. The lake of fire is talked about in the book of Revelation. All of those things are going to be judgments. And I did tell the Jehovah Witnesses as well in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, that their uh, interpretation in the New World Translation is incorrect, that some are raised to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. And I said, your particular scripture says to eternal life and some to an everlasting cutting off. And I said, look it up in the Greek. That's not what it says. And they didn't want to listen to any more. And so I, you know, I just walked away. So if you're in here saying... You know, I don't, I don't believe in this uh, Jesus that it's all it's cracked up to be about. What about all these other religions? Jesus claimed exclusivity. If a prophecy is made about him and he fulfills it and he calls himself God, I think you ought to believe. Now, that final step to belief is what? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Every other religion, including the Jehovah Witnesses, have to work at it in order to attain. It's man's attempt to reach God where the Bible and Jesus is God's attempt to reach us. We just have to simply accept it. So my prayer for you is you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You say, I confess him with my mouth and believe 
in my heart. You can say that prayer at any time. But what I'm going to do as we close here, just repeat this prayer after me. Everybody who's in here, if you want to accept Christ, if you're not sure, if you just want some fire insurance, we can just go ahead and say it all at once, okay? So I'd like you to repeat this prayer after me if you'd like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus and the forgiveness he brings. I believe in him as my Lord and Savior and I truly desire that he is my Lord. I thank you for your salvation and for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.